Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. What's up, movie fans? We got our first Wes Anderson movie on the docket today. Pretty exciting times. Yeah, this is a this is a really big uh, director, a big specific topic to dig into. And I'm not actually sure which way we want to get into this. When this got yeah. voted in from the listeners, I realized that, yeah, we haven't even really touched on Wes Anderson at all. Because how mm-hmm. can you like dip a toe into that subject matter without going full-fledged into it as like a film nerd? As film nerds, Wes Anderson is a really hefty topic. He's really like he's over in his own silo. Right. As we'll talk about today, like he pulls from so many directors that he likes and so many visual styles, but he's really consolidated them into something that is entirely his own um, to the benefit. And I think detriment of his career, like he just had French Dispatch come out, at least here in Canada, just uh, about a month and a half ago. And, uh, you know, that one and it does feel like something gets gets said every time he has a new movie out is that he's become more concentrated right like they're he's just taking the dilution out of his style movie by movie and it's honing in more and more and i think a lot of people might argue that budapest was kind of the best balance where he weaponized his style and you know it got him more awards acclaim and i think that movie probably did did among his better movies financially as well um but it's such a specific look that um uh, it, it it separates him over one place, and it either ma- it, I think it kind of makes it into this thing where you either really like his stuff or you don't like it at all, and there aren't as many people in the middle. Yeah, I think it's a very small gray area for Wes Anderson films. I think people either really like all of his movies, and like mm-hmm. everyone's more than happy to share their opinions of which are their fi- which of them are their favorites and least favorites of his. But mm-hmm. then there's a whole other section of people in the world who just literally can't can't buy in to what he's doing, what he's doing with his style, what he's doing with his actors. Um, his whole thematic approach to filmmaking is uh, very specific, like you said, uh, and it only a certain caliber of person can handle it, I guess. I've yeah. watched, I've, well, I've showed Wes Anderson movies to some people who were clearly like out of it within the first couple of minutes. And then mm-hmm. they like maybe stuck it out through the movie, maybe didn't and just couldn't like, never could sink their teeth into it for even a minute it's a barrier to entry i'd say almost on par with just the horror genre because people can tell so quickly whether or not they're in that's true it's it's such a it's such a wall that's built up with a very specific shaped door right that only certain people are going to go through it and i think i think it'd be very rare to find a person who like watched the first half hour of any movie since the one we're talking about today, Royal Tenenbaums of his, that went into it being like, I don't really like this, and stuck it out, or or didn't end it with the same idea, because it is it's so it's so uniform and it's so intentional. There is there's not a lot left up for you to um, work around in terms of the way things look or the way things sound or the way people yeah. talk in his movies. It's so locked into one specific thing and. And and I like I mean all his movies have been successful. He keeps getting to make the movies he wants. But I would say like there's a certain degree of risk in sticking to your guns like this. Right. Well, we don't have to dive fully into this today, but Wes Anderson did have his ups and downs with the studio system after this movie. He got a lot of money to make the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. 
and that didn't go so well. But you know, after you make a movie like this with the, like the Royal Tenenbaums, which has, which demonstrates excellent control over an ensemble cast that is star-studded, mm-hmm. uh, features a fantastic soundtrack. You know, it feels like a big budget movie, but yet it was only like a twenty-one million dollar budget. Mm-hmm. So. I think he showed what he could do with that, and then they gave yeah. him way too much money for the next project, and it wasn't even in the same ballpark as something like this, That which is a much more relatable subject matter than something like The Life Aquatic um, yeah. as like a family drama, which yeah, life, Anderson life himself calls. Definitely... He, he calls it a drama is what I was going to say. The Life Aquatic is definitely less accessible, and I'm not surprised it didn't do quite as well. I do think it's testament to him, though, that after having you know, at least a financial failure like that. He didn't, I don't think he watered down his style too much. You can make arguments about whether Darjeeling sort of moves away from that, but I think there's still so many hallmarks in there. Well, um, if, you, if you really want the brief tour, it's like yeah, yeah. Tenenbaums was his third film after Bottle Rocket, which was as big of a hit of an indie hit as you could really get at the time in the 90s. Martin Scorsese sung its praises, and that's about all you can ask for as a first-time filmmaker. And then he made Rushmore, which got some acclaim, got the Bill Murray involved in indie filmmaking, and then some, which is something he stuck with the rest of his career. Um, Then you have Royal Tenenbaums, which got a lot of award hype without getting any real nominations or awards. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird looking back and seeing they didn't even get a production design nomination for this, which is wild to me is wild just one nomination for this movie which was for the screenplay written by wes anderson and owen wilson um and then after this like i said life aquatic he got a much bigger budget he sunk a ton of the budget into stupid things (laughs) according to (laughs) studios um and then after that he kind of had his breakdown didn't know what he was going to do with his career made darjeeling limited with his best friends in india (laughs) which is exact Mm. which sounds like the perfect midlife crisis movie for a filmmaker. Um, yeah, and, like and just going and trying to get away and find yourself, but also make a movie about people that are getting away after a trauma and trying to find themselves. Exactly, and kind of exiling yourself in that way. Following Darjeeling Limited, he comes back with an animated film, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which, as you alluded to earlier, kind of hints at his level of control that he wants to exert over a film. So... Mm-hmm. Fantastic Mr. Fox being what it was, an animated... Uh, stop motion. Sorry, stop motion style film. It exerts about as much control as you could possibly ask for. And yeah. then he came back, you know, with Moonrise Kingdom, uh, which kind of showed another, a new evolved Wes Anderson, but yet still like demonstrating a lot of the things that he had done pri- prior mm-hmm. to that. Um, and here we are, like kind of with the Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, and French Dispatch, kind of the last three films... Uh, really mixed reviews on the last two. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know. I yeah. really don't know anybody who liked I Love Dogs, uh, but I have a lot seen of people like Grand the theater, Budapest. and it didn't. Yeah, it didn't didn't land super well for me. And also, like very quickly, yeah, French Dispatch I felt was really like leaned heavily into his style and his production, and was also the most surface level in terms of its exploration of these characters, right? Well, and yeah, you can sit here all day and say that, oh, his characters are all weird. The way he shoots is so uh, unnatural or it's so removed from reality. But his characters have always seemed so, at least emotionally real to me. You know, they're Mm -hmm. 
there's always some connection that you can make to most of his characters, which is how like he kind of speaks about them as well as all like little figments of people he's known throughout his life or like exhibiting traits or attributes of people he's always known. So there is like a real human level, at least I found until Grand Budapest Hotel, which is where I found, which I, I a film I really enjoyed, but mm-hmm. it's almost elevated reality. Even the way it's shot is almost like hyper real. And it's very I felt, heightened, and, yeah. and I do think it creates more distance between you and these characters. But yet, that so there was that distancing, but I, I thought it was such a well-written and well-delivered movie as a whole that that one held together. But in, mm-hmm. when it comes to Isle of Dogs, which was just a bizarre sense of humor, a bizarre sense of darkness to it, uh, to a plot that I don't think really needed it, and then... I've heard mm-hmm. nothing but the same about French Dispatch from what you just said, which is basically pretty indulgent, surface-level Wes Anderson without the emotional yeah. attachments. Yeah, I, that's the thing. I really enjoyed French Dispatch for what it's worth. I like sort of it as a love letter to this type of um, magazine and the stories it would tell. It's this little anthology. Some of the short stories are better than others. Lots of great performances. But I do think there is this core classic Wes Anderson that we're going to talk about today, which is someone who wants to talk about these overconfident, often failing men. (laughs) Almost always, right? Almost always men. Yeah. Um, And and, and sort of interrogating the flaws in, in humanity in these people, even though so much of what he puts on screen appears flawless and the way that people talk in his movies is such a specific thing and maybe feels a bit divorced from reality the types of people that they are i think come across very real and are very easy to connect with in that way like bill murray's character from rushmore uh jason schwartzman's character from rushmore royal and the kids in this um zisu things like that you have these people who are often selfish they often think they can do more than they can and they usually fail over and over and over and they and they they have a lot of perseverance there's a there's an odd confidence to a lot of wes anderson's characters in in the face of like immediate embarrassment and long-term failure um now do you think that's just his way of kind of adjusting his own sense of reality because i feel like a lot of characters are neurotic in the same way he seems to be neurotic as a person, but yet they all seem to have more elaborate backgrounds, more exciting lifestyles. So I always have felt that his characters have been such a close extension to himself and of himself. Mm-hmm. And then the people who he play, puts around the central characters, like the parental parental figures or children, are often the way he he as a person. Wes Anderson views children and parents. Um, there's a lot that's been said uh, that I've read a ton of stuff quoted, like quoting Wes Anderson in interviews, and also just uh, read a lot of essays about all all the familial attachments that his films seem to have. Mm-hmm. There's a long, there's a long line of uh, fatherless characters or absent parenting in his mm-hmm. films. He comes from a divorcee family, but a lot of people do. And he just yeah, seemingly he, he bit that into that. In that. Yeah, he mentions that in the commentary for this movie, but also at the same time says, like, I don't think I was trying to make a movie about my parents' divorce. And right? I'm, I'm so, not saying that either. I'm just yeah, saying little, all these pieces yeah, no, that I, you can actually relate to are because they are real. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I, I think there's that. And I also think like, you know, probably a lot of artists, they, they have an intention or not, but yourself, your, yourself and your, your paradigm and the way that you look at the world is always going to come through. So whether that's him using scripts and movies to interrogate how he feels about himself or what he thinks he's accomplished or what he hasn't, um, you know, almost like a, a lot of his characters are experts in, in a field in some way. And usually like these culturally significant experts, especially in this one, right? They're either leaders in business or in writing or in sports. And when it's in sports, it's in these, it's in higher class sports, things like that. You get this New York kind of waspy feel, especially from, from Royal Tenenbaums, I'd say. Well, that's really interesting because it's almost not like New York, too. It It is yeah, camouflaging I, I, all the New York elements. Where he makes it like this secret pocket of New York. And, you know, there's parts where he blocks off the um, the Statue of Liberty. And he, he's Much in this to Gene Hackman's dismay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's in this house that doesn't really exist. And he has all these cabs that are the type of cabs that he liked when they were around. But they aren't actually a formal thing in real life. He's I love that, like, you're in these rooftop gyms with the chain link fences. Yeah. All these little, like, pockets where you're like, I... If I'm not from New York, neither are you. I believe that they're there, but they're also not these things that you see as the most common settings when you do something in New York. Yeah, I uh, I can't pretend to quote this for my as my own, but from the the Wes Anderson book, it's uh, Matt Zollerseitz is the author, and he wrote that it's like a New York as dreamed by a kid who's never been there. <laughs> And uh, I thought I thought that was pretty beautifully said because it is it's like uh, if you watched a lot of old seventies movies that a lot where a lot of them were shot in New York because mm-hmm. it was a, such a hot shooting spot then. Uh, this is kind of these are all the landmarks or the kind of cool locations, the gritty spots, the more prestigious areas, the neighborhoods that you want to be filming in. There's like the Central Park esque looking areas. There's the house in the neighborhood that they're in, but then there's also, like you said, the rooftop gyms, the overpasses, the rooftops, mm-hmm. all these yeah. New York specific landmarks that the harbor, yeah, right? Where, yeah, like, exactly, like with the boat and the bus, yeah, the Green Line, yeah. I mean, uh, this is probably a good time. We should we're going to talk plenty about Wes Anderson before we get into the scene, but we should talk about the movie, and then we can circle back to this idea that he's created a version of New York because I think his process of creation is something that we can really dig into but before we get there uh the royal tenenbaums is about an emotionally distant father who attempts to reconnect with his separated wife and three adult children after he loses his place to live uh the royal tenenbaums directed by wes anderson stars gene hackman angelica houston gwyneth paltrow luke wilson and ben stiller it hit theaters december 28 2001 and uh, it's available to stream on disney plus if you uh if you haven't watched it yet that's uh Good for our Canadian and American viewers. Wow, Disney and, Plus now, eh? Yeah. And before we get into our more more about his style and things like that, we should drop this tagline, family isn't a word, it's a sentence, uh, which I really like. I think it's a great tagline. I think it's in our top mm-hmm. five. Yeah, easily. Like it, it, I think it gets across, like it's not immediately clear what, what it is like i think there are a bunch of different interpret interpretations that you know family can't can't be so simple it's always going to be complex 
uh, but you could take it in a bunch of different directions, and uh, it also imparts the general idea about what the movie's going to be about without without falling back on like a trope or a pun or a bad joke, something more cheesy. Yeah, it it's a good descriptor. It's a good sales quote. It, you know, it's going to catch people's attention, uh, and also. I think it might trick a certain kind of audience into actually seeing this movie. If if you were told that this was some kind of quirky, oddball comedy drama, it might not entice you. But to know that it's a about a family and it can be seen as a family drama probably get gets a lot more butts in seats. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that tagline might make you think it's like the family stone or the kids are all right or... Yeah, exactly. It's complicated. Like these movies, which is basically just like people yelling at each other until they feel better at the end. Well, um, even uh, the Royal Ambersons, the Orson Welles film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, There's versions of that in this, but you're right. Like, that kind of tagline, if you... Of course, right then, like, if you hadn't seen Rushmore and you weren't paying attention to Bottle Rocket when it hit the scene, then maybe that would get you to come see this movie. And by all accounts, uh, the marketing did pretty well. It was a $71 million, uh, return on a $21 million investment. So not not too bad at all. Yeah, it for like we we do love these mid budget movies. I guess this would be considered even a small budget movie. Yeah, twenty million. The and the talent on display like it is earlier. It's two thousand and one, right? If you if you combined the like standing offers for this cast right now, uh, oh you couldn't God. get them for twenty million. <laughs> you couldn't pay Gwyneth Paltrow for the whole. Uh, price of this film right now because of her marvel ticket you probably yeah yeah like you would have to pay the better part of the box office this movie got to get gwyneth paltrow in something because she i mean she's also got her billion dollar wellness brand i'll say <laughs> is that what that is that's Can we maybe not, one of the more generous things let's, i've ever i've ever said on this podcast but i'd, uh, I'd rather not endorse it yeah let, so let's dive in i think uh maybe how about I start by talking about contrivance, and then we can narrow into his style. How's sounds sound? sounds beautiful. <laughs> okay, so I think talking about what Wes Anderson movies look like is a great way to discuss contrivance and when it's a good thing and when it's a bad thing. So by contrivance, I mean something where you can tell it has been put on. It has been intentionally created or performed for a specific purpose and it flies in the face of what was very popular acting style and producing style and directing style um, for the better part of a decade if not longer being realism or naturalism so whether or not your movie looks like you're just getting a snapshot of undeniably real people people that you could run into around the corner if you lived in new york versus a movie where you can tell it's a movie either by the way that people are acting or by the way that it looks right so saying someone is contrived is often an insult in terms of their acting ability if it's obvious that they are reproducing lines that they memorize in a script um, if they are putting on like a facial tick or an accent and it's not incorporated naturally into their performance these are the kinds of things where you would as a critic you'd say this is a contrived performance this is a contrived uh, uh, extra facet, right? And that, that's why you often get people like, you know, Daniel Day Lewis or Ed Norton, actors like that who usually swing for the fences in terms of putting on an accent or a tick or an affectation, but they can often incorporate it. Um, but it still it comes across as a bit of a gimmick. 
I do think that there are times when contrivance is a really powerful thing because sometimes I think whether or not the audience wants to think they're watching something real or not is usually up to you and whether or not you can whether or not a director or a screenwriter can play into that. So I think some of the best examples are like Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. Um, you know, if you watch The West Wing or Social Network, Moneyball, most people don't talk like that in real life. Absolutely nobody has conversations like that in real life. But it's this aspirational kind of escapist thing where you buy into it because you're like, well, I like seeing people be this whip smart, right? And same with like His Girl Friday, right? Which is a big Sorkin influence. People don't are not that fast. They're not that smart. They're not that funny. I thought people fun to just watch were them. that fast at one point in time. Yeah. And that's what the, <laughs> uh, that's why all the old movies are like that. Yeah. Right. But that's the thing. Like old movies, they weren't striving for realism or naturalism. You want to see people talk well, talk better than you saw in real life. It's a form of escapism in real life. Your conversations are sloppy and sometimes you don't hear what the other person said or the other person mumbles or, they're not fast enough to make a pun or a joke. So I, I like the idea that in dialogue with Sorkin or, or those older stuff, there's a form of escapism, but you can also talk about, in terms of production, Fincher and the way he uses cameras. Um, his cameras go places that actual cameras can't go, and they go places that people don't go. They're not trying to make you feel like you're another person in the room. In in Panic Room, you have cameras that go through like the the void in between the handle and the body of a mug or in between rungs in the banister and the staircase um now that is a little different than the way that you know marvel does that now with the completely digitized camera but i know you're i know what you're talking about well, and, and that's the other, like, there, there's so many facets of this to bring into it. Like, there's also, there's a great video by Mike Rugnetta that I'll, I'll link that's about the role of the lens flare in cinema and how, for a long time, it was a mistake. That was an error. You'd never want a lens flare to be in your movie because then it's obvious you're looking through a lens and it should take the viewer out of the movie, right? And then at a certain point, it added style and then you ramp that forward a couple decades and you have jj abrams who puts lens flare in everything or to add realism right yeah to add realism or in in marvel movies and other modern movies you'll have dirt landing on the camera that even happens in children of men after a a tank shell hits something you get debris on the camera in other movies you get blood from the main character being shot on the camera lens all these are things that you think would take you out of it but often they add a sense of realism and, um, and this is because of the way we've been conditioned to watch movies and watch things on screens, right? Mm-hmm. This was something that film, early filmmakers spent, you know, the first 30, 40 years of filmmaking to figure out exactly how to control an audience. How can we convey a sense of realism? And eventually we just got so used to the camera and understanding what a camera is and that there is a camera in the room, even if it's subconscious and we're not like fully registering when we're watching a movie we have to, we are so aware that there is a camera filming what we're watching that mm-hmm. when you're in say a space movie from like like the modern era of film say like christopher nolan's interstellar if you don't get a lens flare when the camera passes by the sun in space then you know that you're not in a movie then you mm-hmm. know that it's not real and it's it's just something we've developed as human beings to interpret movies on their level. It's on like it's counterintuitive to the theory. Exactly. 
Yeah, right? because we it's in, not in practice our now. realism anymore. It's the movie's realism. Yeah, and that's I why mean, Wes and, Anderson and, is such a fascinating example because he defies all of this. Yeah, everything visually is contrived. I don't think he's ever trying to make you think that you're you're looking through a window into a real place because we don't see things with his with the symmetry of his frames. Um, with the with the choice of framing too like what is in the background is always important it's always there and it's not important in a way that is subtly adding to the scene there are very obvious things covering the walls whether it's Richie's paintings or his his trophies uh, or bookcases or, or awards for the kids things like that I think Wes Anderson has found his mode of contrivance that just allows the characters to come forward more than anything else. So his well, that's exactly work, it right there. Yeah, his camera work doesn't have any parallax, which is uh, to to paraphrase, just like sort of the much much more rapid movement of your background in comparison to your subject as you change the angle of the camera. Did it? Is that roughly right? Did yeah, it? yeah. You're basically I know I know parallax, like motion, I see motion it, but the definition. Yeah, motion blur. Like if you're thinking like almost any Michael Bay movie, as he spins the camera around a subject, he's using telephoto lenses, really long lenses, to maximize that parallax effect. Makes the camera swing by, and you get just a little bit of that in this movie when Richie lets Mordecai go, and you watch him. and And I think there, there's four or five shots I took note of where I do think Anderson moves away from contrivance because he's got that really long lens lens on Mordecai. He's got um, when a, Chaz does the fire drill with yeah, his I was kids. Say that. Yeah, it, you got like shaky cam, um, the me and Julio down by the schoolyard montage. Like a montage is inherently, well, it's inherently contrived, I guess. Yes, but I still think it 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 more imparts the experience of those kids where they're just doing a bunch of stuff stuff with Pappy around town, cutting it up, um, and uh, there are a couple other shots like that. But I do think. My my general sort of thesis on on Anderson's style is that if you remove all your variables, if everything is controlled, exactly what's on screen is exactly what should be, and you're not moving the camera unnecessarily. You have a couple pans or things like that that just bring you closer to your subject or more in line with your character. The stuff that will rise to the surface is how flawed these people are, because the shot is flawless in in terms of I think what what Anderson's intentions are. Yeah. So you, you let your flaws and your characters come to the surface. Right. So that's why this sense of contrivance or what I would deem probably more as formalism mm-hmm. kind of works for Anderson. It works to augment what he's already doing with his characters. Something I'm going to keep coming back to in our discussion today is how much he is obsessed and how much he loves his characters because they are so much a part of him. Mm-hmm. So having these perfected backgrounds set design uh to kind of always have this implicit meaning uh on the subject in front of it uh works like you said to kind of contrast the expectation the perf- the the perfect expectations of the characters and that like what they were like in this movie specifically the tenenbaums were prodigy children who mm-hmm. couldn't grow up like to live as prodigies anymore so they peaked early. Yeah, exactly. So all the set design around the house that they grew up in is has not changed. So they are surrounded by 
all the reminders of their failures and their past successes and constantly being pitted against those things. So in this sense, his set design is working perfectly to contrast the characters for our, in, for to like inform the audience of what we need to be feeling about the characters in those moments. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work exactly this way or as well as this in all of his movies, but this is something that he does every sing- in every single movie. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's an important thing to note is that, you know, we're making these, these, um, observations about Wes Anderson's style and they are not a hundred percent true throughout his career or throughout even this movie, right? There are yeah, exceptions just, to all of yeah, this. Of course. Like a good director, they're not locked in to, oh, well, I can't, I can't use a long telephoto pan when we're trying to follow Mordecai because that wouldn't make any sense. That's not Richie's eye, right? And I, I do think that's important that the these the great directors they're going they're going to approach something, but sometimes you know the scene like the fire drill, the the shaky cam, you know the 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 shoulder mount is just going to be more effective for the energy of that scene, even though it maybe breaks with the rest of the style. And, and going off that point, based on the commentary which both you and I listened to before this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, he seemed to be much more willing to say, "Oh, I changed this on the day," or "I talked to this actor about it and we adjusted this." Versus what I've heard him say in more recent interviews, which is like, no, it was all planned like three years in advance. <laughs> like the, the, the costume thing, right? this person like, even, was wearing. Yeah. Even even this movie, you know, um, without knowing any better, I'd say, yeah, this thing was storyboarded down to the mi- the most minute detail. And it definitely was a part of the process. But it's, I think it's great to hear when they're like, on the day we figured out something better. It worked yeah. better. It suited our needs better. And, uh, you know, you can, we've talked about, about people like, you know, um, Deacons and, and Villeneuve more recently too, who are very strict storyboards, uh, based, uh, uh, creators, but it's not always the right call. And I, I don't, I think, I think it's better to have that flexibility, right? Yeah. It's something that I just don't think Anderson has as much in his repertoire anymore. I think he's much more mm-hmm. set in his ways which is why his movies are coming off a little bit more cold than this one, which, I don't know, has, to me, I watched this one when I was pretty young. I watched this when I was mm-hmm. maybe grade 8, grade 9, and it mm-hmm. just hit me right away. Like, I I was so emotionally invested because these characters are, like, I don't know, there's something so much more grounded about these characters than even the ones, say, in Grand Budapest. Yeah, I mean, another thing we should probably touch on, because this is our needle drop month, is that uh, Anderson's also very iconic for his use of music. He, I think he spends a fair amount of money on music every time, and he gets his money's worth. Uh, definitely when I was younger and I started getting into his movies, that was the thing that stuck with me, was like, yeah, we can all spot like his symmetry, his centered frames and stuff like that. But the stuff that you carry is that like I had never heard a song by Nico before before i'd seen this movie and we uh, we had a bunch of people in the in the the dms on instagram after we did the vote who were saying they were speaking specifically to uh anderson's music choices well it is we did say it was a needle drop month and uh yeah unfortunately we didn't we are not focusing on a needle drop scene per se today but we do have uh maybe some shout outs that relate to that yeah um well we keep it flexible right like right. Good we're, directors we're, we're not we're, we're not stuck with our storyboards yeah Exactly. Uh, also, the montages we found in this movie were just too limited in terms of talking about an ensemble cast, so that's why we did go the direction we went today with our scene. But uh, mm-hmm. before we get into that, I will say to like add to that, 
the music in Wes Anderson movies have has always progressed my musical knowledge. It's always been, mm-hmm. oh, I know that band, but I don't know that song, or I've heard that song, yeah. but you're making it so much more now to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking like of Street Fighting Man and Life Aquatic. That song yeah. I had heard before, but then that has elevated that song to a, an all-time classic for me. Um, and the soundtrack is absolutely loaded. I don't know how they didn't go over budget on soundtrack alone for this. Yeah, I don't know. And even like some of them he mentions in the commentary that like they were ones that they wanted for Bottle Rocket or Rushmore. And right. they didn't have the money then or they couldn't. They didn't have the clout to get the rights. And so it's clear he's keeping a lot of stuff in his back pocket. But I think it's a, it's a really um, fundamental part of his style is when you think about his stuff, you're also thinking about the way that he he adds another dimension of feeling or just like ramps up the effect of a given sequence or a shot because he, he added this thing into it where even sometimes the the lyrics if there are any don't directly apply to what they're doing and i like that he can do both right like yeah, richie totally can leaving the hospital and it's set to second grace by nick drake which is very obvious one-to-one in terms of the lyrics but in other times you know, like the the Nico song when Margot's getting off the bus, or even my my shout out, are are they're more more the vibe of it, right? That it just the timing and the feel of it directly jives with the scene, and I think what he's going for. And this is something that, at least from like what I learned, I think I learned picked this up in school because I did a class on Wes Anderson and Marty Scorsese together, mm-hmm. uh, and we were told that a lot of Anderson's influence for the musical montage and for the pop, like the inclusion of pop rock specifically from that era was a lot of Scorsese's influence, which he, which uh, he did most famously in Mean Streets. Uh, There's a scene with uh, Harvey Keitel where the camera's locked off on him as he's drinking. And it's a, it's a, there's some very famous early Scorsese uses of this exact same use of a slow motion mixed with a pop song mixed with the Mm -hmm. character's revelation uh, it's it's something that I, I don't know. You alluded to at the beginning of the podcast too. Like when you're listening to this commentary, everything like every few minutes, Wes Anderson is saying, "And I stole this from this movie. I stole this from this movie. From mm-hmm. this director. From this character. From this movie." And it's really it becomes really obvious that he is just really really good at stealing other people's ideas and making it his own. Because there's almost yeah. no doubt about it that Wes Anderson movies are Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't ever feel like even if I could recognize a shot that he pulled from someone else, it never like, oh, they're doing that, right? It's not like, I don't, none of it's homage. No. Right? It's, I liked how that looked and I can use it for my purposes in this. That's right. Right? He's very, I don't know if cosmopolitan is the term, but he's drawing (laughs) in all these cultural touch points, right? Whether or not there are other directors and shots or his expansive uh, pop music, um, experience right where yeah. to the extent that I, as a kid i knew that like oh i'm watching a new wes anderson probably gonna find a couple songs that i haven't heard before that i really like yep and probably will get to see all my favorite actors in the same in the same movie you know i my way into wes anderson i don't know if we even want to get into this but mm-hmm. my way into wes anderson was through owen wilson who i was just a massive fan of as a kid growing up and then I started figuring out what movies he was in. I found out he got nominated for an Oscar for writing this movie. So that was what naturally drew me to Wes Anderson. Then I watched Bottle Rocket, and that was enough for me. I cleared out the filmography right away. 
Yeah, I mean, I had um, my older brothers are both into his his stuff. Uh, one of them in particular, big Wes Anderson fan. I we we got him that that big like coffee table book at one point that has all the art and like the the little miniatures with all the rooms in them and and stuff like that. So it was definitely at some point I was old enough to watch would have been Zisu or something like that with them. One of those mid sort of eras. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. Like, because it, it, again, you're like, as a kid at least, it was like, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. Right? Like, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of sad. I think it's a, a nice break into these more gray area movies in terms of tone. Um, especially with those earlier ones, like Moonrise Kingdom and stuff like that, you get into a little bit more whimsical and stuff. But there, there's this real pathos to Darjeeling and, and Zisu and, uh, and this and Rushmore. Yeah. Right? And once again, you could uh, more more than more than one of them hinges around a death as being the thing that brings people together, which I don't love as an idea, but uh, I still I still really really appreciate the movies. Yeah, I would love to see him mix it up a little bit. At the same time, I don't know if that's what his bag is. Like, I don't know if that's what he's going to do with his career. If he's just going to keep trying to be as Wes Anderson as he can be, I don't think that's going to work out very well, based on reviews of French Dispatch, but. I really hope that we can get something like that. I can feel that he's really inspired by his next project because that's what this movie feels like. I think, I think he's so established that he's never going to be out of options in terms of finding someone to fund his work. So if he wants to keep doing his own style and further, uh, reducing it, um, in a good way, right? Like removing the dilution and, and, and making it pure and pure, then I think he'll be allowed to, but, I mean, just just last week, the Red Letter Media guys dropped their their recap of the of the last year's movies, and they covered French Dispatch, and they both came to the conclusion that they'd like to see Anderson do a Marvel movie, um, just as a form of challenge. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with them, but it would be cool to see him maybe even just move into a different genre. A Wes Anderson horror movie would be interesting. Yeah, I don't know how much I want to see Wes Anderson really dive into like horror or anything that I don't think he would be personally invested in himself but yeah. if he if he actually just finds a project that he really is passionate about that's what I want to see him do next I yeah. would love to see him like stick close to the heart I would love to see him change it up but also just like get back that more genuine spirit that almost all of his movies had up until like I Love Dogs yeah I'd, I'd love a focus on another sort of broken but trying uh, patriarch or leader or you know his 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 usual bag it, I'd like a return to that I think that, that that'd be fun yeah with with more modern sensibilities and, and a different budget certainly I agree um, but uh, with that we should probably jump into the scene yeah you read my mind we uh, 40 minutes in <laughs> uh, but going into our scene today we are talking about a scene about halfway through the film uh, it's from 58.35 to 1 hour, 5 minutes, and 20 seconds into the movie. Uh, and it is where Royal is kicked out of the Tenenbaum house. So in this scene, uh, Henry Sherman, played by uh, Danny Glover, follows up on his suspicions and invites the family in as he reveals Royal is faking his illness. Uh, he's faking stomach cancer. Uh, the scene follows Royal's exit from the Tenenbaum house as he interacts with each of the children and his uh, ex-wife Ethel. Honestly, not a ton of scenes jumped out at me in this watch because 
it's always a struggle to basically want to be able to have every actor in the scene that we want to talk about but also get scenes that maybe do something particularly interesting with a camera or that hinge on a certain point and so we sort of went back and forth a lot but we did end up going with this one because you've got everyone in the same room uh, literally for one or two of the shots there's a there's a shot with a moving camera uh, at the door frame that I think gets everybody in there which is lots of fun and it's also I mean it's a it's a pivotal point for Royal um, and that's sort of that's one of my first notes here is would you call this the end of act two because I do think it's Richie's arc that determines the act structure but this is certainly the end I of agree. act two for Royal yes I and this is straight from Wes Anderson's mouth like the movie is about Royal, but it's centered around Richie. Yeah. Royal is the um, key, is the main subject, and he forces think, things to happen, but... Yeah, I think, like, I think you kind of, you get end of Act 2 for Royal's arc, and he goes into a little bit of limbo, kind of starts the beginning of his Act 3, which is then galvanized when Richie has his scene. Which, I mean, there's there's no, no point in, in moving around it. We hope you've all watched this movie by now. Uh, but but basically, Richie's suicide attempt kind of galvanizes the rest of them, um, in or, or prompts them into their their the ends of their arcs. Uh, but this is the low point for Royal. I'd say he's he's had his scam found out. Um, he he loses his shelter. Him and Pagoda are out on the street. They have to go to the Y. Um, he gets stabbed. Right, like there's just there's a lot going on for Royal, and and another thing I want to talk about. This could happen now, or it could happen at the end of our discussion. What's Royal's motivation? Does he want well, shelter and meeting his kids again is a byproduct, or is it vice versa, or are they just too intertwined to tell? I think it's really intertwined, and you're not supposed to be able to tell. But mm-hmm. if you want to listen to the words from Royal's mouth, he says it in the film that he just wanted Ethelin back after he found mm-hmm. out that uh, Henry Sherman was her ne- her newest suitor. And this is this could be seen as a complete vanity thing for Royal's character, but the timing of it coinciding with him being kicked out from his hotel that he's been living in for 20 years also makes me think that he is just a scumbag who was kicked out of his hotel and needed a place to live. Saw that it, or yeah. heard from Pagoda, who was the, uh, I don't even know what you call Pagoda. Uh, a valet, a va- maybe? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, Pagoda is much more of an assistant to Royal, uh, who still resides in the Tenenbaum household. So he, when he tells Royal that Ethelin has been proposed to, that's what kind of sparks all this. But it is also is when Royal gets kicked out of his living space. But that's, yeah. Like, if you look in the order of events, he's kicked out of his living space. And then the process of trying to get back into his house, um, he also finds out that, yeah, Ethel uh, has, has a suitor in, uh, in Henry Sherman. And then I think in the course of being back in the house, both two two forms of really just like um, laying out his ownership, right? Sort of like marking his territory, his, his house and, and his woman. Um, I think he realizes that he missed his kids and he, and he missed growing up with them. And they are these people now that he wants to spend time with. And it's best exemplified in my favorite part in this scene where he says, Look, I, kn- I know I'm going to be the bad guy on this one. But I just want to say the last six days have been the best six days of probably my whole life. Immediately after making this statement, Royal realized that it was true. And then you have Alec Baldwin's narrator step in just for a moment to say, 
It was when it was when uh, Royal said this that he realized it was true. Which and makes I love how that breaks. Sorry, oh, go ahead. Which makes me think that he didn't say that truthfully initially, right? It implies that. Yeah. Well. Well, I like. Yeah. So I like that. Number one, Royal is an a liar. Ongoing. It said that he was a really successful prosecutor. Like he's a good talker. And I love that this is where his lie and reality become the same. It's something that he says, meaning it as a lie, and then it's in saying it that he realizes that it's true. I love that little pivot. Yeah, it's and beautiful. Hackman, Hackman for who sounds like he he wanted to approach every scene in terms of getting it done as quickly as possible. On the commentary, Anderson kept saying that like his take on the scene was to do rapid fire dialogue, do it on the move. He didn't like delays for setups. No. Uh, he's he's an actor of a lot of acclaim. Like at a certain point, you, you you know, your job as a director is to work with these personalities. But sounds like Hackman's not the easiest guy to work with, right? He's he was from really... an older generation of actors. He sounds like he's an angry guy, you know. Yeah, we don't have to dive too far into this, but the amount of stories yeah. I've heard from that set about how nasty he treated Wes Anderson were are pretty appalling. They always made me yeah. dislike Gene Hackman, even though I think he's absolutely fantastic in this he's role. A phenomenal actor, but um. Yeah, and, and, you know, to Wes Anderson's credit on the commentary, he says nothing about him. He just says he wanted to do this scene fast, or he had thoughts on how it was framed, which is not really the actor's place necessarily. But, again, when you're someone with the legacy of Gene Hackman, I'm sure you walk on with some expectations of your creative control. The one story that I do want to impart, or the rumor that I heard, was that the only person that could keep Hackman in check was Bill Murray when he was on set. Of course. More res- uh, Bill more Murray kind of kind of defended the rest of the family against the angry dad um but sorry this is this is a this is a long um a long tangent from uh i actually have lost my train of thought about when when we got onto gene ackman as an angry person train well you're talking about that the moment where he actually realizes his artifice like his lie is oh, true. Oh yeah. So so what I really like about that is then still Ethel asks him why he did it and he says, "Well, I thought I could get you back. I thought I could get rid of Henry. I also have no place to live and I'm broke." And he still at that point refuses to admit that like now he wants to be in their lives cuz he loves his kids and he wants to be better. Yeah, he's saying all the uh, all the worst still, things first. There's still some denial, yeah. right? Like he had realized that like, "Oh, I actually I have a form of weakness. I want to be with these kids, which is no asset in terms of my quality of life or my my financial standings. And I like that he still doesn't admit it yet, right? But he he has he has a nice sort of retribution in in his arc or in his in his plot in the third act. Yeah, and just to go into that very specific point, uh, when I presented on this movie in university, one of the things I focused on was the artwork and specific like as a specific component of the production design uh a lot of the drawings in richie's room so let's talk about richie's room for a sec actually so richie is played by luke wilson um and as a kid he was a uh, tennis prodigy uh who won many championships won many trophies um and his room is decorated with illustrations on his wall that richie did himself uh to kind of commemorate these moments. So you'll see if you pay really close attention in the background and some of them you like, I had to zoom in. I remember doing this years ago, but you have, you can really see like, it's like literally shots from the movie animated and drawn on the walls. Um, so there's a few that I can note. One of them is, uh, him in the same position that 
Ben Stiller's kids, uh, Chaz's kids, are in with Royal when they go like when they're like well they're like that that's that's implied that that's dog fighting right because one th- of them comes back and they have dog blood on their face I think so. This there's some animal stuff it's, in this movie. It's right? dark like a dog and Wes Anderson's a dog, dog has to die. There's dog fighting. He also mentioned that like the Dalmatian d- d- mice was just like they put sharpie dots on yeah. mice, which probably isn't good for them or their skin. Nope. Uh, and there's another thing too. There's there's another animal thing where it's like, oh the the bird got stolen. Anymore. Oh yeah yeah they lo- Mordecai was like lost and like like ransomed back. Or yeah something. they had to they got it was a hostage situation with the bird that's fascinating yeah amazing but, uh, yeah not not a great track record for for animals <laughs> uh, both like in universe and in production yeah um, wes anderson anyway anyway so, so so yeah richie's got all these illustrations of key moments of his life uh <laughs> yeah drawn onto his so walls. there's like the do- a dog fighting image of him in the same position that Ari and Uzi are in uh mm-hmm. with royal there's um and then in this moment where royal has this line addressing the rest of the family in the room kind of on his exit and he says you know the best six or the past six days have been the best six days of my life probably he's he's got two images i love how he qualifies it it's so it's kind of sloppy because they've they've been probably the best six days of my life (laughs) so he's got on one side there's the image of him shooting chaz from the roof so it's like royal on the roof Mm -hmm. shooting his oldest son chaz with a bb gun um, which is like a childhood trauma of chaz's and then on the other side is him posing with Richie and a tennis trophy. Mm-hmm. Look like and all like kind of smiling together. So once again coming back to this idea that all the production design is to reinforce what we're supposed to be feeling or to kind of give us more information about what to feel in the mo- in any given moment. This one's really direct for me because it's like a nice close-up static shot of Royal saying his line with these two images on either side of him. Uh, it's quite poetic. Yeah, and I do think this scene does a lot visually and otherwise to sort of talk about or bring up the ideal of failure and success. So you do have all over the wall, like a lot of Richie's illustrations of moments of success, tons of trophies as well. Yeah, there's a whole trophy Along the wall, wall, tennis trophies. But then on the TV in this scene, you've got Eli Cash being interrogated, essentially, like on on a a author interview program about how his last book failed. Yeah. Um about his last book failing and this is all the moment when when royal scam fails as well right he's found out and i think you have you have a lot of this also i mean they they got um one of those dalmatian mice is in this scene it's a little throwaway yeah before henry sherman comes in and that's a little reminder of like chaz's business success as a kid can we get somebody over here to kill these mice for us no they belong to chaz or anyway, he invented them. And yeah, I mean, and that that's another thing where, you know, um, Chaz got Royal disbarred and sued him for control of his own finances, which would have been partially uh, won from those Dalmatian mice and the, and the breeding program he had. So again, like all these things, like these people cannot escape their past and their past is constantly telling them that they're not as good as they used to be. And by all willingly um, going back to the house, they're willingly surrounding themselves with decorations of their past successes which is really yeah, fascinating that's the thing, they're really not they're really not taking anything down or making any modifications with the exception of um like the mounted head that's right that they take like down the, of royals what is that uh 
a hog. He, he calls it something. It's a hog. He he has another name, and I don't know if it's a a type of hog or like a name that he gave. Yeah, it, it's a right? it's a weird. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's a weird piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, going back to the scene, there's so many different, like you said, moments of failure being addressed. Because then when Royal is on his way out, as you said, he has that moment with Ethelin where he admits to like all the like the the dumb reasons why he would come back not listing that I want to spend time with my family is one of them. Mm-hmm. Then he gets to the bottom of the stairs and Chaz is there and he says, "Take it easy on those boys, Chassie. I don't want this to happen to you." Commenting yeah. on the fact he doesn't want Ari and Uzi to be kicking Chaz out the same way for being a neglectful, irresponsible kind of uh, self-centered parent. I would even say that 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 that's a moment of growth for Royal to Huge. even have the foresight to say something like that. Well, it's it's the the only reason why we even begin to feel sorry for Royal, at least I do at this point, is because he's starting to learn so much about his family and himself. And obviously, mm-hmm. I'm not condoning a neglectful uh, father or like this type of figure in any way, but it is it's like quite emotional to see his character like realize how much he loves his family and then how much he's enjoying spending that time with them, even though he's lying through his teeth the whole way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of sympathy for just flawed people in these movies. That's very true. They're given a lot of time and they're it's, it's almost a safe way to, I think, engage with this type of person. Cause obviously if you had a toxic person in your life, it's not necessarily someone that you would be recommended to keep giving second chances to and stuff like that. But to be able to work these out in these very safe ways as a viewer um, is, I think, something that a lot of Anderson's movies, especially the earlier ones, when you had these more flawed people, offer. Very true. Um, right? It really makes me think of there's the line, I don't have it word for word, but from Steve Zissou, where he's he's up in, like, the the blimp or, or, or the glider with Kate Blanchett, and, uh, and he tries to kiss her, and then... Please don't make fun of me. I just wanted to flirt with you. There's a lot of sort of vulnerability like that in these movies from these characters. After, like, dickish behavior comes the vulnerability, mm. yeah. It's yeah. like, that's a very common trope worth probably diving into and dissecting a little bit more. Yeah. Um, we're not going to, though, because we're almost at the end. No. But We don't have time. <laughs> um, I do <laughs> want to touch on this last bit because he has his moment with each of the kids and Ethelin on the way down the stairs, basically, on his way out of the house. Um, Richie is still being like the good compassionate son at the end kind of mm-hmm. he at least walks his dad out to the ca- cab and has like a moment where he kind of calls him out on it oh, Richie this illness this closeness to death uh, has had a profound effect on me I feel like a, a different person I really do dad you were never dying but I'm gonna live it's it's so tragic the way Gene Hackman delivers that line. It's beautiful and tragic, and mm-hmm. I just th- like there's like that line and then like the line you already quoted earlier. Uh, these are why I think this is such a tremendous screenplay because these moments where yeah. I don't want to like this character, I'm really liking this character. I really w- want to do. support him. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, and I, I like I think also like you can watch the way that Anderson films it and and sort of what he's giving priority when. Royal says that line up until that point they were shooting in re, correct me if I'm wrong it's called a what's it, a dirty 
single where you're over the shoulder of the person yeah wait it's like where it's partially blocked it's just called shooting dirty yeah so like basically when you're looking at richie you can see royal's shoulder in the side of his head and frame and then when you reverse you get the same thing you see a little bit of richie in royal's frame it's called a dirty one or a dirty single and when they when you get to the line where he says but i'm gonna live it's a it's a it's a it's it's not dirty. No, it's, it's clean, full, right? full like frame. They take Richie yeah. right out of it. Yeah, and it's these little moments where he knows that like this one, I really I have to I have to highlight this. And obviously, you know, I maybe only have a couple takes with Hackman, and right. they're going to be good. So like, let me let me give this one priority, right? And yeah. there are lots of little camera choices that he makes throughout of this, right? Like, you've got Henry Sherman coming up the stairs, which he drew from Suspicion, a Hitchcock movie with yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Cary Grant. Which is, like, um, one of the very again, few shots that's actual homage. Yeah. But I love that, like, also, he's like, yeah, but our stairs weren't long enough and we couldn't light it the way we wanted. And there's, like, it's like a four-second music cue of, like, foreboding organ Not music. even. I think it's, like, so it's yeah. so short. It's so short. Which and makes it's this it really kind of thing funny. where you're just like, you're like, that doesn't fit anything. But, like, you also get the idea that, like, Sherman's about to drop some knowledge. Like, he's going to come in and, and, and mix things up. But you got that. You've got when you go into Pagoda's room, the camera moves along on the angle to go di- to follow Pagoda's eyeline. Yes. Right. After yeah. Sherman knocks on his door. A lot of things that just draw you directly into the people. I love that you've got the two shots of the of the the, ho- the hospital room, like Richie's room, where you get everybody in two shots up until that shot where it swivels from the corner. You get and you get um, everyone in a single shot. But I love that, like, even they've got Buckley, the dog, comes up and st- and sits down right in this little void in between, I think, Ethel and Ari and Uzi. So you even got, you got all these Wes Anderson sort of um, tableaus where everyone's at different levels. Like, Margot's in the corner sitting down. She's calling Eli Cash because he had just, yeah. like, on drugs walked off set of the TV show. You've got Buckley way in the background, Ari and Uzi. I love that you can get all those people in there, and they're all at these different levels and different depths. And then Royal, like, at in the foreground, his back is the only back to us, and then he gets up mm-hmm. and, like, walks into the bathroom to get his stuff. Yeah. Which is just amazing. And I love, for, for so long, when I was looking at that over and over, it was just like, I thought it was a joke that he gets changed into, like, his immaculate, you know, pastel shirt and tie, three-piece suit right away, but then I realized it is a time jump. Because, like, Ari and Uzi go from the door to sitting on the bed next to Margot and, and Ethel when he comes out. So there is yeah. just a like, little sneaky, like, they were waiting out there for five to ten minutes while he got dressed and got out of, like, his pastel pink hospital gown uh, to leave. Yeah. because uh, I love all the action that happens right after the reveal that he doesn't actually have cancer. Because it's like mm-hmm. Margot's on the, already on the phone. And, like, she, when you see, like, her, she, like, drops, like, the phone down to her side mm-hmm. uh chaz and then chaz immediately the picks up the phone yeah. and calls the cab company uh and then like we i even love like when when sherman's interrogating him you got so margo had left um left side of the screen mm-hmm. right so you've got you've got um royal on the bed and richie on the right so the left side is occupied by this character that's the heart monitor which as sherman sort of makes it clear that he knows that uh, Royal is faking the the heartbeat goes up in in frequency. I didn't even notice that. That's hilarious. It's it's really funny because his and, fingers and then, start I, twitching. I, I noticed that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like Hackman like plays it kind of cartoonishly, which I think works a lot. Where like 
Sherman calls everybody into the room, and then he tells he tells Bagoda <laughs> to say what's going on. Bagoda has something to say. He has the cancer. No, he doesn't. <laughs> like Pagoda sticks to his guns, and Pagoda, I mean, every line that Pagoda has in this is funny. Um, he was in all of Wes Anderson's first few many. movies, but then I think he was done yeah. after this one. But yeah, him mm-hmm. and his son are in this movie, which is awesome. Come, yeah, like I could go on and on about like how many people Wes Anderson brought along with him through his first several movies, but it is yeah. it's really impressive because you know, as mm-hmm. someone who makes movies as well. It's cool to know that you can bring the same people you, you, build those you were with at the very beginning with you into like much yeah. bigger productions. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I want to touch on is just the last interaction with uh, Margot at the like before he gets in the cab. Uh, he kind of he has the, like I don't know. It feels like like what you were talking about like one of those Aaron Sorkin lines where it's like this is very like realized. It doesn't even feel like it'd be like something you'd actually need to say, but he's like. He's not your father. Neither are you. But that does feel like something that she's always aware of. Exactly. Right? Where you get the flashbacks to when he, when they're kids and, like, he's always introducing her as, as their adopted daughter. Later on, he doesn't know her middle name, which is his mother's name. Yeah. Things like that. Like, feels like she's always been painfully aware of it and he's only been aware in, in a couple specific ways. To- but totally it, it is a button to this... Or it's a button to the the interaction with the family. I think a yeah. lot that like, not his, he's not her father, and he's also not functionally any of their father. Yes, exactly. So um, it is. It's such a good end note. Um, and we have tragedy, tragedy, tragedy mixed with like I guess humorous reactions to some of this exit. But it's mostly like this is supposed to be played like in at least most filmmakers would play this as like slow, dramatic, sad moment maybe a bit of like anguish from the family as he leaves but it's kind of brisk it's undercut by the last bit oh by pagoda yeah because like I, it was something i wanted to touch on right at the beginning about wes anderson thematically is just he his ability to mix in tragic consequence with absurdist humor at the like at just at the at impeccable times his ability to go from mm-hmm. tragic to humor back to tragic or vice versa is like Un, unparalleled i would say yeah and uh, this no this yeah is you, pretty you, awesome like they he basically he says something like oh, i guess we're out on our own again or or we're out on the street together one more time pagoda and then it cuts to what is codified as royal's point of view but it is it's it's in line with pagoda's height and it's hackman is it's like a, set, a foot and a half taller yeah than it's him. a set like these are called planimetric shots where it's like positioned directly in line with the actor like it's like center mm-hmm. frame you're center framed and you have like shallow focus a uh, flat background and like mm-hmm. you i saw you in the notes mentioned that a lot of this is similar to a stage play and that's what this kind of yeah. filming style comes from and so mm-hmm. in, in the scene we're discussing today i was hoping we could talk about this a bit more but it only happens in this one moment in our scene and it's where pagoda pulls out the pocket knife and yeah you get he pulls out this tiny little Swiss Army knife, and the the camera's looking like it's tilted down at the knife, and then pans up to his eyes, or not pan, uh, tilts yeah, up tilts. to his eyes. Um, before before he stabs uh, uh, Gene Hackman again, 
in the belly and and hackman's got a good fall like he, oh yeah it's... he tries to fall onto the suitcases and it's a little sloppy and then i love like just like the idea of pagoda being like this lifelong loyal friend where it's like i have to call you on your bs and my way of doing that is stabbing you for a second time and he's like i'll help you into the cab i'll load up your furniture or your your luggage uh i'll disinfect the cut and you know i'm your man i'm with you i'll be with you but i still i have to stab you right now (laughs) but uh royal makes it pretty clear though that's the last time you ever stabbed me (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't I wouldn't be comfortable uh, uh, stabbing uh, Gene Hackman personally, and I, I doubt I doubt he did many takes of that fall I, onto the onto the luggage. Yeah, it, it looked like the cameraman was just ready to go. <laughs> like, don't yeah. don't don't miss him in the frame. We got one go on this. Yeah, <laughs> be in focus. No, be in and focus. I mean, yeah, that's a great kicker because you're right. It is heavier and and a a way more emotional part of the movie because you do get these true emotional beats delivered flawlessly by hackman but to have it end with this funny little moment um also a callback to the story that hackman had been telling his grandkids about first time he met pakoda was pakoda stabbed him and then saved his life um it's it's that nice little circle and then they get in a gypsy cab which you've seen so many people get in so far and they it, it it's his low point he's he's injured he has no family he has no money he has no home it's almost the low point for the whole family too but I'd say like yeah. the next phase is the is the next low step. But it mm-hmm. the scene is super deflating in the moment. But then by undercutting it with this moment of humor at the end, it kind of alleviates a lot of that because you're about to dive into something else really heavy, which is the Richie sui- attempted suicide scene. Yeah, and uh, finding out about Margot's indiscretions and all that that all comes right after this. So. I think by leaving it with like a humorous note, and then you see him like getting like Pagoda fixing his wound at the hotel room where he's calling him out too. I think it really helps balance the audience emotions going into that next heavy moment. I agree. I think it's really important because mm-hmm. otherwise you'd it really would become a slog. Yeah, exactly. Didn't have and again like the yeah like Margot's um, infidelities is also edited in a funny way and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And it is very that good. Point, yeah. You really, you really hit the low energy and the, and the, and the, the emotional low point. So this is, this is, I mean, this is a key scene. It does a lot of different stuff and we got to see a lot of people in it. I think it was a good one to, uh, to dig into. And I think we got good bang for our buck in terms of if we're going to talk about Wes Anderson for an hour and change, I think we, we've covered a lot. Yeah. You know, th- like, uh, we're going to wrap it up here, but we have, there's so much to say about Wes Anderson. Um, we will probably be doing another one of his films at some point yeah. at some later date. I have no idea which one I'd like to do with you, but uh, maybe we can leave that up to another voting poll. But uh, yeah, with that, we'll move over into shout outs. And what we wanted to do this time was because it is the needle drop theme. Uh, we're, we're, we've got our normal little basic shout outs and we're also going to shout out a music cue that we really like. Um, so mine, uh, I, one thing that I only noticed in these last couple rewatches when I'm, you know, particularly more observant and taking notes is that, uh, Richie carries around a little like pocket, um, pepper shaker, which he takes out. It's got like a cap on a hinge and he uses it to season his bloody Mary's, which is the only thing he's seen drinking throughout the movie. And I, uh, you know, I like, I like to season my food. I like pepper personally. I like it fresh cracked, but, uh, you know. If if it comes down to having it in your pocket, maybe maybe the flaky dry stuff will do. So I think that's a funny little 
little character uh, note. I had definitely seen it in the opening scene on the boat with him before, but never did I see it come out again until you mentioned that. That's yeah. very funny little character note. One of so one of hundreds of little character beats, eh? That or mm-hmm. objects that characters possess or objects of characters past in this film. There's just there must be hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two micro shoutouts before we do our needle drop shoutouts. Um, yeah, the two photographs in Owen Wilson's uh, or e- the character Eli Cash's house are by a photographer co- named uh, Miguel Calderon. Uh, Wes Anderson apparently owns these two paintings, uh, which he found from this guy who's Mexico City based, but he doesn't have, didn't have much more information on them than that. I love these pieces of art. They are absolutely perverse and provocative and mm-hmm. interesting and massive on a, like in terms of scale. Yeah. So I, I always thought that those stood out. Uh, and I think even in the commentary, he mentions how those stand out versus the rest of the sets we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have to say something about Seymour Cassell. Uh, I was yeah. going to recommend a Cassavetes movie for my recommendation, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, Seymour Cassell is an actor who's been, been in it. almost every John Cassavetes movie and like all the Wes Anderson movies until his death, unfortunately. Or, mm-hmm. actually, no, not quite. Until he got very old, though, because he was in Life Aquatic as well. Um, and then he played a much bigger character in Rushmore before this. Uh, he plays, like, the small bit part of the elevator operator who then comes in and fakes... Dusty. Dusty who fakes as <laughs> Royal's doctor as well, because he owes Royal a favor. So he poses as the... Dr. Doctor. McClure, I think. Yes, yes. And then at the end of the movie, it's great. He's giving more medical advice yeah. after the accident at the wedding. Yeah. Which is which is a funny note. Very funny, uh, and uh, this this guy has played some like played one of the scariest gangsters I've ever seen in uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and he also has played some of the most heartwarming like older characters I've ever seen. So I highly recommend checking out uh, more of his movies. Uh, Faces is amazing. Uh, Minion Moskowitz is what I know Seymour Cassell from the most, um, but Killing of a Chinese Bookie is also a fantastic performance of his. Um, yeah, he 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 kind of reminds me of having the range of uh, like a Robert Prosky. Okay. Where he plays again just like a truly evil gangster in Thief, but he also played Santa in Miracle on on Thirty uh, Fourth Street. Right. Yes. It's it's right? got like Prosky, Cassell, like these guys are like, I can be a nice old man, I can be a mean old man, and they're very different things. Yeah, like it's kind of like that hard burly man kind of look. Like the, they're mm-hmm. it's something about the look. But a truly gifted actor who only got to play really bit parts through most of his career, except for with Cassavetes. So um, if you can find anything cool with him, uh, hit us up, because I'd love to hear about more recommendations. I can't go through all 50 of his movies on my own, so. No. Um, And then, uh, yeah, for my my needle drop uh, shout-out, I'm going to go with Bob Dylan's Wigwam. I love the energy of the scene where it's Henry Sherman and Ethel they're at a dig of Ethel's because she's a, an archaeologist. Um, you know, make whatever assumptions you will about that being something about her being stuck in her family's past. Who knows? I'm not sure if there's anything there. I'm just reading into it because I think I think on the commentary, Anderson said that his mother also was involved in, in, in some form of archaeology yeah. or some, some study like yeah, that. There's some but anyway, so Sherman in an earlier scene had, had proposed to Ethel... And then this is, I think, the next time you see them together, and he's sort of checking in to see what she thinks, because she said she needed time to think about it. She she said she wasn't aware how Henry felt about her. 
So they're walking through this dig site. There's a nice funny moment, very specifically framed moment, where Sherman falls into a pit. Very slapstick. She helps him out. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Glover and, I mean, Houston... Houston does not actually have a ton of lines in this movie, and I think she knocks them all out of the park. She has a very specific touch. It's never huge, except in the the very funny scene between her and Hackman mm-hmm. when he says that he's That's dying. pretty big. Otherwise, I think it's, it's very measured, and I, I think she's got a very light touch to this. And sort of at the end of the scene, she reveals that, like, she's very nervous about the prospect of marrying or dating anybody because she hasn't been with anybody in 18 years. But, like, in her admitting that, it sort of takes this weight off of the scene. And at the exact same time, you have floating in this lyricless Bob Dylan song with horns that's just like, la-da-da-da-da. Like, it's just, like, kind of like nonsense. And the the energy to it, I think, directly fits where they, they're looking at each other and smiling. And they're, they're sort of, like... They they they've taken the the air out of out of what they were both nervous about. Yeah, it's almost like a uh, moment of bliss. Yeah, and I really I think it works really well. And then that like he he uses wigwam to then carry over to uh, Hackman talking and meeting Ari and Uzi for the first time. That's right. Uh, you get the very funny shot of those kids working out and like doing sit ups in their in their uh, their track suits. But uh, I, I, I really like that music drop. It's one of many great ones in this. That's an interesting one. Um, I wouldn't have picked for myself, but uh, I'm glad you picked it. Uh, I am going to pick the aforementioned Judy is a Punk montage, mm-hmm. which is when uh, Margot's husband, Raleigh, who's played by Bill Murray, Brent, uh, hires an investigator, private investigator, to track down who she's having an affair with and... The results come back much more uh, elaborate than he expected, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Wes Anderson said in the commentary, it was much more about showing it visually because he felt it was like a fun, a fun element to like instead of like having them read a piece of paper, you ha- you show the indiscretions and the relationships and all of her. Uh, I don't know her secrets. Yeah, basically everything. That's that's core to her character. Yeah, it it even says at the very beginning that she was very secretive, and that was really important to her. Mm -hmm. So um, it's an unveiling. It's almost yeah, it's almost her end of Act Two without her being aware of it. Yes, I kind of I kind of really like how this works because it's like as soon as you see all of her secrets, like she hasn't even found out yet, and how she does find out is great, and that's maybe one of the biggest casualties of our scene choice is that we did not get to talk about Bill Murray that much because he has few lines and great lines in this movie. The Bill Murray and Dudley relationship alone would have been worth talking about because it, it's it's Where, wonderful. Where's that red one going to go? <laughs> I, lo- I Yeah, I love He's not in it that much, and every every time he's in it, it's so good. His, um, shall I repeat the question? Yes. Uh, about the cigarettes is so good. Anyway, just I, I'm I'm stealing the thunder from your shout out. Well, I, that's pretty much all I was gonna say. Um, I was I knew about the Ramones, like obviously as a kid, you kind of hear Blitzkrieg Bop or whatever. But Judy, hearing Judy mm-hmm. as punk in this movie made me hop on the Ramones train, and I like was you know LimeWire downloading all their Ramones songs mm-hmm. after this. So yeah. I always remember, I always will attribute my love of the Ramones to Wes Anderson, um, and. Uh, because we didn't get to talk about Margot or uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's performance enough today, I think that this is a really bold acting choice to pick or to like do scenes like this. Just like it's really mm-hmm. laying it all on the line, and you're really like you're not uh, 
your character's not being very flattered in the moment. Yeah. So it's a it's a pretty dynamic scene that I think works really well uh, because of direction and performance and music choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great one. And and yeah, another one where again we could do we could do a full series on the Royal Tenenbaums and do an episode on just each character, but uh, that's not how we do things here. It's just single servings. Um. So yeah, that's it for the Royal Tenenbaums, and that's it for our Needle Drop month. Where we're headed next month uh, is. Uh, Emily Blunt movies and we're actually we're, we're flipping our process a little bit because we really want a specific Emily Blunt movie to be what we talk about in episode 20 for our next potluck um, if you know if you've been listening to us and you know the directors or the director that we really like you can probably guess what movie's going to be in episode 20 but so episode 19 the next one is one we're going to have you vote on so we're going to do that on Instagram We've either just done it or will do it in the next couple days. We'll figure out if you guys want us to talk about uh, Edge of Tomorrow, The Devil Wears Prada, Looper, Jungle Cruise, Mary Poppins. Probably not. Probably not going to. Yeah, maybe cut that one off. (laughs) (laughs) Emily Bunn's got got lots of different movies, and uh, we're going to talk about two of them next month, and you'll help us pick one of them. So keep an eye on the Instagram. And uh, with that, we will wrap up our episode, as usual, with some recommendations. Uh, Mine uh, ties to uh, Owen Wilson, the co-writer and one of the the actors in this movie. This is a movie, actually, Tay, that you recommended to me. I don't think I would have heard of it otherwise. It's called No Escape. Uh, It's from 2015, directed by John Eric Dowdle. And uh, it's Owen Wilson in a real sort of, like, B-thriller. Right, it's not too concerned with doing anything terribly complicated, uh, but I'd say its direction and a lot of the sequences do their job very well. They are tense, they make you they make you sweat a bit, they get you worried. Um, I think it's a really a really tight movie, and uh, I, I I had a good time watching it, and uh, that was a great recommendation from you. Because again, I th- I feel like it's one where you look at the poster, oh, it's or you see the bad, yeah. the very bland no escape title, you're like, that's a red box movie. That's a that's a direct to prime, not even direct to Netflix, right? But uh, yeah. it's it's more effective than 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 it looks, and I, I'd recommend it. It's an, it's a fun little thrill. It's fun seeing Owen Wilson being thrown back into a role like that because I haven't seen him do anything mm-hmm. like that since Behind Enemy Lines. And then uh, also just a juicy little bit part for Pierce Brosnan. And that's I, I th- yeah, he's lots of fun. Yeah, in it. and uh, I think I watched that when I just had the Amazon Prime free month or whatever. Was going through their stuff, and I haven't. I'm trying to catch up on all my Owen Wilson still because he's had a few stinkers mm-hmm. over the past few years, and was kind of yeah. dreading that one. And it ended up being much much above average for its type. Yeah. And uh, so, Tay, if you're not recommending a Cassavetes, what are you recommending? I'm recommending the 2010 movie from filmmaker Richard Ayoade called Submarine. Have you heard of this one? No. Uh, It's something, it was my first ever Toronto International Film Festival experience. um, And it was a, a randomly selected movie for the tickets that I had bought. So I didn't even know what I was showing up to see yet. Um, it's a first-time director, Richard Ayoade, who has been an actor in a couple things that I've seen. Um, my connection is that this is one of the only movies that I could say fits into something similar to Wes Anderson. There's almost no other movie I can think of that reminds me of a Wes Anderson movie. This is a coming-of-age story um, 
That's a great cast. It's it's a it wasn't that noteworthy at the time, but yes, like Sally Hawkins has since become like an Oscar winner. Um, Patty Patty Considine is yes. is a consummate performer. Yep. He's I've never seen him deliver a poor performance. And uh and also uh sorry, what's the name? And Noah Taylor, who has also been in a couple mm-hmm. of Wes Anderson movies. Um and then uh yep. Ben Stiller produced or helped produce this movie and helped to get it some footing. Um so there's another bit of a Wes Anderson connection and he has like a spit part. He appears on on a TV screen a few times Ben Stiller does. So uh Oh, very cool. I don't want to say too much about the plot, but it's about a young adolescent romance and it's very sharp wit. Uh, very self-aware British humor, and uh, if you like Wes Anderson movies, I think this is uh, right up your alley. And uh, we'll post in the show notes where you can find that. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, as always, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please drop us a review, give us a star rating. It helps us uh, get our name out there. And uh, make sure to connect with us on Instagram. Every Sunday we do a recap. We want to find out what you've been watching this week, if you'd recommend it, what you think about it. Uh, and you can always get us at uh, sscpod at gmail.com as well if you have any questions or, uh, or any thoughts on the episodes. But other than that, we will uh, we'll catch you next time for some Emily Blunt movies. But I'm going to live. <laughs> <laughs>